This episode of Talking With Tech is brought to you by Smartbox, assistive technology that inspires you to be who you are. You can find them at thinksmartbox.com. Welcome back once again to Talking With Tech. My name is Lucas Duper out here in uh, sunny, will you believe it, Portland, Oregon. Uh, joined, as always, by Rachel Madel. How are you? I'm good. I'm really happy that you're enjoying some sunshine, finally. I, I, enjoying is a tough word. When, when we're so used to the rain, it's sort of like, what is this angry thing in the sky? And why does it, <laughs> why does it heat everything up so much? Um, and of course, Mr. Chris Begay, how are you? Hello, not as always, but as often as I can be here. <laughs> <laughs> True. As frequently. Yeah, most, almost, always, sometimes. <laughs> Well, so this week we have Western Psychiatric on the show, which I'm excited about. This is going to be an interesting opportunity to talk about assessment. Um, and we've, uh, we've actually, we've touched on assessment a number of times before on the podcast, but this time we wanted to talk about it uh, in a little bit different way in terms of adaptations, uh, considerations for assessment, some different things that, that might cross our mind as a C specialist that wouldn't cross our minds necessarily if we're just looking at um, language and oral language user. So to kick that off, what, what are some of the limitations or special situations that we would face as AC specialists with assessment? I think part of it is that traditionally speaking, I think we're sometimes when we're doing assessment, we're thinking, do children qualify for speech and language services? And I don't know about you guys, but I know that all of the kids that I work with, they absolutely qualify without a doubt. So then it becomes, okay, where are the gaps? Where What are the gaps that are missing in you know, their comprehension of language concepts and their expressive language and their ability to answer questions and all these kind of details. So I think that's the major one that sticks out for me is that, you know, we're not assessing AAC users oftentimes for do they qualify or not. Yeah, that's definitely a good point. I think another big thing that's different is that I think most like a traditional um, speech language pathology assessment or evaluation is done with one speech language pathologist and one student and they sit and give the assessment and then you write it up and, and you know analyze the data. And I think what happens more frequently or maybe not as frequently as maybe we should be thinking of it is um, when we're considering an assessment for students with AAC needs that maybe it's more of a uh, tribe that does it. Like let's look at uh, the language ability of the students and let's all uh, as a, together as a team, maybe the private speech therapists like you and Rachel, uh, Lucas and Rachel, uh, and, and me, the, a school-based uh, practitioner and the parent, and then uh, the classroom teacher, we all get together and say, okay, where is the student language-wise and what does that mean for AAC? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's a collaborative process. Oftentimes, these kids work on a lot of different areas. So it's really not figuring out what they need to work on. It's what's the most important. I think the best way to figure that out is to take a team approach, right? Because kids are dynamic and they have different layers and the OT is going to have a different opinion versus the speech therapist and the behavior therapist. So if we can all kind of come together and figure out, you know, here are the things that I think are the most important. How can we meld that to create a plan? I think that's the, the best approach. I know it's not always realistic because of everyone's time and you know, sometimes people aren't open to a collaborative approach, which I've come into contact with that. And it's not easy, but it's optimal. If we can do it, it's the absolute best way. 
I think it's worth the logistical nightmare of trying to getting everyone together and fight it because what ends up happening in other cases is that you go to the private speech therapist and they've done their private evaluation and they think it should be X or Y. And then you go to the school and they have their private evaluation and they think it should be Z or W. And then the parents like, yeah, but I was reading online that it should be A, B, and C. And now you've got all the three major camps that might be working to help with the student on three separate pages instead of let's all get together and spend the time. All that fighting and consternation would be, um, it's going to be even more time in the end if we could just figure out our schedules logistically and then uh, work it out together. And with working out together, I think what, what I mean by that is not just sitting around a table and kind of fighting about it, but having some sort of chart or um, uh, rubric that you can go through. Imagine like a, I think we call it needs, uh, needs assessment or a feature matching chart where you look through what the, the student's language level is. You look through all the other needs, like how much can they carry? How much can they target? And then say, okay, what are the different uh, AAC options that might be available to work within those parameters? When you have a chart like that, you're filling it out together. You're all on the same page. You're working together to complete the chart, you know, which might yield a result as opposed to, I'm, I've got my idea and I'm sticking to it and you can't possibly change my mind. I also think that it's really easy to kind of be stuck in your ways when you just like write a report and then send it and read other people's reports. But when there's kind of a face behind the report, you're more likely to compromise because, you know, getting together, it really changes the dynamic. And it's not just, here's my report, here's my point of view. It's it's more of a discussion. You know, you can obviously have your report, but talking through the rationale behind it sometimes makes it a lot easier to start compromising and discussing, you know, what you think is the most important to prioritize. Right. Well, and that can pave the way too for one of my favorite things to do, which is uh, joint intervention, right? So if the OT is working on something fine motor, there is absolutely no way that I can't find a way to integrate language into that exercise, right? Mm-hmm. And um, that's a, a really cool way to sort of get to know your colleagues and to work on multiple things at once and to maximize your time with the student, right? So that, um, you know, it, it was going back to something that, um, that you said, Rachel, that there, there is absolutely with a lot of the students we serve sort of what I guess I would call a hierarchy of needs, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that they might have, you know, be being pulled out for, for insulin shots throughout the day or have tube feeding or, or, you know, whatever it might be that's, you know, a real critical medical necessity. And, you know, one thing we need to, to balance, I guess, is like, where does communication intervention fall in that scale, right? You know, uh, on, is, it, is it more or less critical than circle time, I guess? <laughs> yeah, that was true. a little facetious, but yeah. <laughs> no, it's true, though. But, you know, obviously, kids need to be in, a, in the right place to, to learn. And that means that all of their basic needs are met. And I think it's sometimes that's such an important reminder. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm so laser focused in my therapy. I'm like, we only have an hour. Like we have to get to work, you know, but if a kid is thirsty or tired or, you know, dysregulated, they're not in a place to learn. And it's just, you know, the kids need to be in the right state in order to learn just as adults do. You know, if we don't have our basic needs met, like we're all we're thinking about is like, wow, I really have to go to the bathroom or like, I'm really hungry. I need lunch. Um, you know, we're not in a place to learn. So I think that you brought up a really important point. And, and you can always just model, right? I mean, True. cause I would, I would hate, to, I would really hate for people to use that as an excuse, right? Like, well, you know, I've got to, you know, change them and I have to feed them. And just, I see a lot of like really good care, but then the, that is used as an excuse to not do the academic piece, right? Or, mm-hmm. well, yeah, they're just not in a place to learn. Therefore, I didn't really do anything with this time. That's why we put on The Little Mermaid and you watch that for, wait, what? That's a very you good can, point. 
you can always model, always, always model. So there's always just uh, making the assumption that they are learning, even if they're really not. Just keep plugging away at it. So going back to the beginning of the conversation, so we, we, we've talked about the importance of the team-based approach, which I think we really need to have like a whole episode or five on, on that because it is so, <laughs> it's, it's so critical. Um, but, you know, also the part about, um, you know, the fact that we're, we're sort of able to assume often, obviously not assume, but um, reasonably determine that our children are going to qualify for services within the schools, right? Mm-hmm. Um, does that, does, is that liberating in any way? I'm less concerned with standardized assessment and more concerned with what are the actual, you know, language deficits and what are the areas of, um, you know, that we can start working on. And I think that it's really hard getting through these formalized assessments, you know, with AAC users, you know, even with, you know, a a preschooler. Um, So if I don't have to rely as much on those actual standard scores to qualify, then absolutely. We're about to talk to Western Psychiatric, right? You know, we go through some assessments that, are not normed for our population, right? Um, so this is a way that we can still gain utility from from using those, um, you know, without without needing that standardized score to be exactly 100% like this is representative of this population, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, use it informally. Right. There's a guidelines. Mm-hmm. Well, and then the, I, which I guess brings me to the, the point I was going to make, you know, just the, the, the concept of like, when does assessment start and intervention begin? And, and my argument is that there isn't a line there, that there, we should constantly be assessing. Um, we, can, we can pull, you know, the owls off the thing or the castle or the self or whatever it might be and, and find utility in those, um, you know, in those language tools. I think you're exactly right. I mean, I'm constantly, you know, doing dynamic therapy and dynamic assessment and figuring out what's sticking. You know, we really need to be questioning, is this intervention working? And obviously we take data on that and we assess that. I think it's kind of a fine line because, you know, we don't always want to be making a child feel like we're assessing them. It's not a test. And I tell this all the time when I'm doing trainings is that, you know, yes, we do need to see how how intentional was that communication act and how consistent are they with, you know, being able to use their device intentionally with purpose, but it's it's not a test. You know, it's it's they're, they're living their life and you know, we just need to remember that AAC, it should never be a test. Um, you know, we should just check in um, and have moments of assessment as the speech language pathologist, um, especially. Yeah, I fully agree. Well, and that's, I mean, it goes back to this concept of like, we, we don't want to stigmatize anything about communication, right? Including right. assessment. And so even, even when it is a formal environment, I, I do, I try to make it as, you know, fun and informal as, as possible, obviously, while sticking to the, you know, the standardized regimen. But um, I think it's, I think it's possible to continue gathering data in a structured way and still be fun. Um, I hope so. I try. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard though. Collecting data while you're, you know, managing modeling on the device and all these things, it's, it's a challenge. Um, but it is really important to integrate into, you know, your, your sessions. Well, and one strategy that I use there that might be more applicable in the private setting is that I record everything. Um, and so I can go back and, and validate my results, um, mm-hmm. uh, which is torturous sometimes too, because then I get to see everything that I did wrong, but you know, also improve ideally in my practice. So, mm-hmm. um, it's okay. Every, we all do, we all do plenty wrong. Um, what, uh, what are some other strategies? Like, how do you get around that? 
For data collection, I, I typically know in advance when I'm going to be taking data. So I think you need to be purposeful about it. Um, you know, it's not something that I'm doing the entire session because there would be no time for teaching. But sometimes I'll, I'll set up an activity and I'll kind of prime the child for the activity. And then I'll say, okay, like I'm going to do three trials and then I'm going to take data. Um, and obviously reporting on that exact process in, you know, the documentation. But um, I think it's just the most important thing is, okay, I'm going to be purposeful about it Um, because otherwise, you know, an entire session can go by and I'm like, oh, well, I didn't take data. (laughs) And it's just, it's so important, you know, and I think that having data collection um, methods um, that work for you, because I've gone through so many different data collection sheets and I'm so excited about it for like the first week. And then I'm like, I totally abandoned it. (laughs) And I think, oh man, like I really thought that was going to stick. So I think that it's a process figuring out how you, you know, take data best. And I think that having a really good collection method is that works for you is important. My one thing that I, uh, I harp on with data collection when I'm talking, when I'm coaching other speech therapists through this is sometimes when AAC gets involved, people feel like they need a whole brand new data collection sheet and they got to throw everything they know out about it, uh, data collection because I got to measure if the device is effective. And like, that's not really the question. The question is, is the, is the language growing? And so that is no different than what you're already collecting data. You don't have to relearn how to collect data because there's suddenly devices involved. You can just collect data the way you were before. Uh, and that's something that most speech therapists have practiced and know, you know. Yeah. And, and kind of going off of that point, I'm always like my ears are always tuned in to the spontaneous communication acts. So, you know, obviously we set up these activities and they're kind of, you know, high level prompting that we can hopefully fade. But when there's something spontaneous, I'm always writing that down because to me, that's, that's the whole point, right? That's why we're there is to, you know, really encourage that spontaneous communication, no matter what it comes out like, you know, I'm just like really excited whenever I hear any type of spontaneous communication, I'm just, I'm I'm jotting that down. I'm definitely noting it. Right. Right. And absolutely. I love that point because that's also, those are the sorts of things that I even from a parent perspective, whatever, will want to hear about um, at the IP meeting. Right. You know, I don't want to hear like, well, in nine out of 10 trials, there was (laughs) an MLU of two in this specific with this car and this, you know, block. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, I, you know, I want to hear about that time that the, uh, the person told, you know, Rachel to stop singing or uh, whatever. (laughs) We'll we'll have to hear that story at some point. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I was just going to add one point to that. And then that's where I feel like, you know, uh, an assessment only is a glimpse, right? So, you know, it, hopefully by chance we see what that child's capable of in that small window, um, which is another reason why a collaborative approach is so important because, you know, mom, mom knows what spontaneous language is going on all the time. And so does the teacher and we can kind of all come together and decide, you know, where that child's at given everyone's viewpoint. Right. Very good point. That's, I mean, that's all that an assessment's ever going to give you is that, that one moment, which is why it's important to keep assessing. So, Mm -hmm. Uh, well, with that said, uh, assessment, assessment, we're going to talk about assessment a little bit more with Western Psychiatric. As soon as we come back, you're listening to Talking With Tech. Today's show is sponsored by Smartbox, makers of speech generating devices carrying their signature AAC software Grid 3, which is one of the most popular worldwide. Grid 3 used to only be available for Windows, but now with Grid for iPad, the options for continuity across platforms have really opened up. For thousands of kids and adults around the world, using Grid 3 gives them the ability to really participate in all forms of communication with as much control as possible. 
Grid3 does that by seamlessly incorporating everything from literacy curriculum to text-based grids, all while having access to social media, photos, movies, phone calls, all in one place. All these features of Grid3 evolve with the person while they communicate, participate, and be who they are. From iPad to eye gaze, Grid3 is an incredibly comprehensive AAC solution. Go to thinksmartbox.com for a free 60-day download of Grid3. It's one of the great options to consider for every person needing AAC. My name is Lucas Zuber, joining you from the once-in-a-lifetime uh, sunny Portland, Oregon, where I am sitting inside in the dark. Joined, as always, by my friend, Rachel Madel. How are you? I'm good. Always sunny in L.A. And we're joined also by the team at WPS, uh, Kristen, Laura, and Amber. Um, Laura, how are you today? I am fantastic. Thank you for having us. We really appreciate this. And I'm coming to you from the sunny area of Arizona. There's a, a really big uh, SLP community in Arizona. We've got some powerhouses here in the SLP field. Mailing Chan, we have the SLP Toolkit, Lisa and Sarah, and many bloggers like uh, Danielle Reed from Sublime Speech. So we've sure. got some great SLPs here. Amber, how about yourself? Where are you located right now? I'm actually not too far from Rachel. I'm in Los Angeles, but the other side of Los Angeles in the suburbs. You know, without traffic, it's about a half hour. But since without traffic doesn't actually exist in L.A., it's probably about a good hour, 10 hour and a half drive. I want to uh, make sure that I uh, introduce Kristen Ratliff. How are you? Good. Where's your location at? Yeah, I'm a short drive from L.A., just 24 hours to the east um, in Oklahoma. So. <laughs> <laughs> so you're close. Yeah, yeah, not far. <laughs> well, without any further ado, I know I, I sort of already introduced, you know, everyone, but maybe in order of um, Laura, Amber, and Kristen, tell us a little bit about yourself and um, what brought you to, to WPS and the work you do now. Well, this is Laura. I recently come on board with WPS. I've been with WPS a year now. I've had my C's for 17 years, and the Castle assessment, the OWLS assessment were always my favorite comprehensive language assessments. And when there was an opportunity for me to come on board with WPS as an assessment consultant, I jumped on board because I just so believe strongly in these assessments. These two assessments are authored by Dr. Wolfolk, and I just feel like she is an amazing author and has such a great product. So that's just a quick little background of myself. Kristen, uh, how about yourself? Hi, I'm Kristen. So I have a PhD in cognitive psychology. So I, I studied some about language and development, but um, I was mostly working on other things with adults and kind of was going down the path to be a professor at a university. And then I was doing a postdoc at the University of Chicago, uh, working in cognitive development and um, saw the ad for a project director with WPS. And I thought, wow, I hadn't realized that people actually make assessments. I used assessments in a lot of my research, but I was like, wow, I didn't even think about that being a, a potential career. So I contacted them and thought, oh, I'm never going to hear from these people. I'm not a, I don't have a clinical background. And luckily for me, I heard from them really soon after that and did some interviews and ended up taking the job out in Los Angeles. And that was seven and a half years ago. So 2010. And I've been working on the Castle 2 pretty much the entire time until it came out about a year ago. So that was, that's been most of my career at WPS has been in the speech uh, products. So it's been really great to get to know everybody there. And especially to work with Dr. Wolfolk, as Laura mentioned, she's just 
a wealth of knowledge and has shared so much of that with all of us at WPS. So we're really honored to be sharing her work with the rest of the SLP world. Amber, you're up. Yeah. This is Amber. I've been at WPS for 12 and a half years. Um, I feel very fortunate to have spent my entire professional career uh, at WPS after graduate school. My background is actually in um, clinical and school psychology. I do not come from a speech background, but um, obviously as part of clinical and, and school, there's a lot of learning about um, development and obviously a key part of that is communication and language. Um, what I didn't know until I came to WPS and began working with Dr. Woolfolk is the intricacies of language and its importance and how little actually school psychologists are trained in it. Um, and so uh, Dr. Woolfolk and I have actually talked about how we should make it our mission to make sure that school psychologists get better training in language assessment so that they can really get what SLPs are doing. Um, you, you so mean through we working, don't, we don't just need a Woodcock Johnson for right. So exactly, like you know, a verbal IQ score on a on a Woodcock Johnson or on a WISC is is not a language assessment. Right. Um, Shocking, I know, but um, you know, it gives you some information about verbal cognitive abilities, but it doesn't really tell you anything about language. And um, I've really gained a great understanding and appreciation for um, the work that SLPs do and for the importance of these different aspects of language. So I started, um, when I started at WPS, we didn't um, yet actually own the, um, the castle and owls but we acquired those in 2008. And so I've been working with Dr. Woolfolk since then. It's been almost exactly 10 years uh, since the middle of April um, in 2008. And I've learned so much from her. And, um, you know, I've really devoted a lot of my project development career to these language assessments. So I worked on the revision of the OWLs um, to create the OWLs 2. And as Kristen mentioned, she was hired um, during that process, and she came along and helped out with uh, actually the computer scoring program, which was amazing, and, um, and then took over the castle. And um, she and I worked closely together and closely with the author, and um, we've both learned a lot and, and feel that as a result of that in our work with the author, we've really been able to help uh, develop these really um, outstanding instruments for the SLP community to use, and we're proud of that. Just for our listeners, you guys have mentioned some of the assessments that you guys have, uh, the castle, the mm -hmm. owls. Can you just overview um, the assessments that you have, what they assess, and um, just for our SLP listeners, in case they're not familiar? So the owls, too, um, is a pretty unique assessment in the SLP field because um, many speech and language tests only assess for oral language whereas the OWLS-2 assesses for oral and written language. So it stands for the oral and written language scales. Um, and there are four scales, the oral expression, listening comprehension, uh, written expression, and reading comprehension. So it assesses the four primary modalities of language um, expressively and recept receptively. And it provides uh, an overview of an individual's skills in those areas. And it's based on um, this theory of Dr. Woolfolk called integrative language theory, which talks about the primary components of language that affect the way somebody's able to use it. So one of those is lexical semantic, obviously vocabulary knowledge is important. Another is syntax, which is the grammar. And um, then we have uh, superlinguistic, which is a term that refers to 
the understanding of language at a deeper level. So this includes things such as inference, humor, double meanings. Um, and then we have pragmatics, which is the social um, implications and use of language. So all of those four areas are integrated into the four scales of the OWLS 2. So as a result of the test, you can get a standard score in each of the four areas, and then you get item analysis broken down by those four categories. Um, and what else, what's unique is that you can administer only one scale. If you're only interested in oral expression, you only administer the oral expression scale. You get a standard score, you get your item analysis. But the more scales you administer, the more information you get, and then you can also um, generate some composite scores. That's really interesting because um, I actually was just on the phone with a psychologist yesterday, um, kind of speaking to what you already uh, referenced as far as the training or the lack thereof um, of what language you know, disorders are and what they look like. And I feel like I'm constantly trying to talk to psychologists about this. Um, but we talked about literacy and the reading writing, and I feel like it's this gray area um, mm -hmm. where our scope of practice, it touches it but it's kind of very unclear. So I'd love to hear your thoughts or anyone's thoughts on, um, you know, our scope of practice when it comes to reading and writing um, and how far, how far do we go? Or is there a line um, that we, in your practice? Well, I, you know, when we talk to different people, we get different answers on this. Um, I can tell you that more SLPs purchase the, the oral language tests and more non-SLPs purchase the written language tests. So yes. from a simply sales perspective, we see that divide and we do. We have, we we have SLP customers who say, say things like, oh, um, you know, the reading and writing is done by the resource teacher or the school psychologist or educational diagnostician. That's not part of what I do. Um, ideally, they would all be integrated as they're all different aspects of the same thing. Um, but I think it varies by you know, by area, by school, by team. And, you know, ultimately it would be great for them to be integrated at a deeper level. But even if you get the school psychologist administering the written tests and the SLP administering the oral tests, you can still then combine your results and take a look at them and compare them. So I don't have a real good answer for that. Um, I think that SLPs as part of their training and understanding of language certainly would be able to administer the reading and writing tests. So I think it's really just sort of the expectations of the, the school or the clinic or, or wherever their setting is. So I was just going to jump in and ask about the CASEL. Um, yes. So that's your language assessment. And I'm wondering what makes it different than something like the self? Sure. Um, this is Kristen, and I'll take this one since I lived with the castle for like seven years. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long time to live with yeah, a, an assessment. It is, it is, yeah. <laughs> um, but like as as Amber described with the owls too, um, it's based on the same theory because it's from the same author. So it as the owls, you can kind of think of takes a. a a sort of global approach to language because you're crossing all the different modes of language. You have speaking, you have listening, you have reading, you have writing. Um, the castle too focuses solely on the um, spoken language element. So it's the comprehensive assessment of spoken language. So you're really diving in deeper into the specific, specific areas of expressive language and receptive. So you're gonna have listening comprehension, but you're gonna have expressive components as well. Um, 
and as Amber mentioned, it does cover those four areas of language knowledge. So you have lexical semantics, you have syntax, which is traditionally in most uh, language tests. And those are kind of what you think of as the more academic skills of language, right? Vocabulary and grammar. Um, but then it does delve deeper because it involves the superlinguistics, which is what the author is referring to as these kind of higher level, deeper thinking, not using language on its surface level, right? So you can use language in a lot more flexible way. You can be sarcastic. You can say something, but mean the opposite. So the intended message of the speaker uh, has to be understood for you to really have that comfortable, flexible use of language. And that's something that generally doesn't come online until a bit later um, in adolescence. And that's not always included in a lot of um, measures. So I think that's one of the things that makes the Castle too unique. And then there's also a performance-based pragmatic piece. Um, so it's not a checklist. It's not just do they show these things. It's giving them specific instances and then saying, you know, how would you react in this uh, scenario or somebody does this how would you respond and so it gives you kind of you know play scenarios where you're gonna have to get a response from a kid so even if they know what they should say can they actually put that in their own words or would they say this is how you would respond uh, so that you can see a lot of difference there that you may not be able to capture in some of the other assessments that are out in the market and I couldn't agree more and um, that's the one of the things that I like about the castle the most is that pragmatic piece because, you know, a lot of these language assessments, they have a checklist um, and, you know, yes, that can give some insight. And when I'm giving an assessment, sometimes I don't, I'm oftentimes I don't get to see the child interacting with right. peers. So it's hard to kind of encapsulate how is their social use of language. But I love the scenarios that you guys right. give in the subtests because it's really practical, really practical scenarios that gives me a lot of insight is into are they you know able to take perspectives and understand other people's perspectives are they able to respond appropriately um, when something unexpected happens in a situation um, and so that's probably my favorite thing about yeah. the castle yeah and a lot of people call and that's one of the nice things too about the castle too is because you can use each test is independently normed so if you just want to use pragmatics you can mm -hmm. just use pragmatics. You don't have to do everything else. So that's one of the things that we want to make sure that, you know, people can use the test how they need to, because every case is different. Every kid that's going to come to you has different presentations of things that, that might be an issue or you're not sure. So there are, you know, index scores that you can use to um, get a, a more general view about how the kid's doing if you don't really know from the get-go what you're going to focus on. And, and those are going to be different based on the kid's age. And those are backed by the data from the norms. You know, we did factor analysis to determine what are the most useful tests at a given age. And we want to have an expressive component and a receptive component in all of those. So the index scores are a good place to start there when you, you know, don't have a lot of guidance. But then you can really pick and choose from there the individual tests and they cover the lexical semantics and the syntax and the superlinguistics. And you can, you know, it's a la carte. You pick the ones that are really going to be the most uh, useful for you in the specific case. And then you can get the standard score for one of those tests, three of those tests, whichever ones you want to do. Let's talk about the opus real quick. The, the brief story of the opus is that, um, so when Elizabeth Wolfolk first, Dr. Wolfolk first developed the castle, it, it didn't have 14 tests, it had 25. Mm -hmm. um, because she's that prolific and that 
you know, dedicated to trying to figure out the best way to assess language. And one of those tests that didn't get um, included as part of the original CASEL was a test of um, narrative comprehension. And when we began looking into the revision of the CASEL, we realized we wanted to include something like that. But as we looked into it further, we realized it really belonged more as a separate assessment. Because as Kristen mentioned, one of the unique things about the castle is that it um, dives deeply into these individual types of skills. Um, and that's really what makes it so great. Whereas the opus requires the combination of skills. So what it is, is it is an assessment that um, requires the clinician to read a passage and ask a child to answer questions. So you can sort of think of it as your very typical reading comprehension test, but spoken. And there's very little out there that measures this, but it's a hugely important skill because this is what we're asking kids to do in the classroom all the time. They're expected to listen to their teacher and then be able to retain that information and then use that information, remember it, make inferences out of it, and apply it. That's, so that's what the they always stuff. wanted me to do. I, I, now I get it. Okay. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. You're not just supposed to listen. You're supposed to do stuff with the information. And so that's the purpose of the opus is to test how good um, a, a child is at that skill. And that requires um, the integration of all of the skills measured by the castle. It requires integration of um, vocabulary knowledge, of inference, and it also requires memory. So one of the things that Kristen didn't mention about the castle is that as much as possible, we tried to take memory out of the equation so that um, the castle tests really focus on the language uh, without the confound of memory. However, with the opus, you can't measure listening comprehension without a memory component because that's a piece of it. And so we didn't take it out. But we do have an item analysis section where we're looking at um, these specific areas, at memory, at inference, at vocabulary. So you can see where the breakdown might be. So you can see if maybe the child is doing fine, except for that's really just a memory issue. They can tell you the meanings of vocabulary. They can infer from the text, but they can't tell you the specific details. So maybe it's a memory issue, or maybe that's what they excel at. They can tell you all of the specific details that actually happened in the story, but you ask them to infer something and they can't do it because it's a higher level skill. And so those are the sort of things that the opus is getting at. So, it, and it's, it's a very quick and easy test too, because you're administering five passages, each which have approximately eight questions associated with them. Um, so you can get pretty good information in a pretty short amount of time. Well, tell us a little bit about this, um, uh, the online platform that you have. What, what is this? Is this uh, to administer tests? Is this for scoring? Um, I'd love to hear more about it, given we're techie people. <laughs> so for the OES, what we call our OES, it's our online evaluation system. What we have for the speech language um, assessments is free online scoring. So with the CASEL II and the OPUS, it is still a paper um, direct assessment. So we still have the paper protocols. However, we um, provide you with a free online system to give you a score report, which really saves a lot of time and is fantastic. However, we have just started something new with our speech and language assessments with the Arizona Four which is our um, articulation and phonological assessments. I'm, I'm sorry, phonological processes assessment. And that we have an option for a print version like everybody is used to, as well as a digital option for the stimulus items so that you can download that to your 
iPad or onto your laptop and use that to administer the, um, the picture items, the stimulus items. And is this something that you have to pay additionally to have, or this is something that comes with a paper version of the assessment? So with the digital download, you have the option of buying it um, either in print or digital for the same price, or you can buy a combination kit, um, which would allow you to do both. So up to four SLPs could use that kit, and that is at a discounted rate with them together. But I want to tell you some of the fantastic things about the Arizona Four that I absolutely love. Yes, I, this, please. I love the Arizona. Yes, this articulation assessment is completely different um, in a few ways than any other articulation assessment out there. So my favorite thing about it is that we have sound values. So there is a weighted number associated with every sound that we test for, and that weighted number is based upon how often a sound is said in conversational speech. So at the end, your raw score is a very helpful, useful speech intelligibility score. So you actually get knowledge from or, or information from that raw score. And then again, you can turn it into a standard score so it gives you great information. One of the questions that I get often about the Arizona floor is, why do we not test in the medial position? So we only have initial and final positions. So this author, Dr. Fudala, um, she looks at sounds at, at the syllable level instead of the word level. So if you're looking at the syllable level, you would only have an initial or a final position. And I think that's a fantastic way of looking at it instead of at a word level because of um, you know, where the sounds are placed. Also, the Arizona Four um, tests for vowels, which a lot, of, a lot of other articulation assessments do not look at the vowels. And it is a test of word articulation, sentence articulation, and phonological processes all in one assessment. It is fantastic. Also, I have not come across many assessments that actually have an area for you to calculate MLU. So on the back of the Arizona 4 protocol, there's an area for story retell and picture description where you can also calculate your MLU for your mean length utterance. That's really nice because you're able to kind of take a connected speech sample for articulation, but then you can also use that information for language, which is your really language cool. sample. Yes, yes, it is excellent. My first exposure to the, um, the Arizona was actually a, a district that happened to buy it instead of the Golden Fristo, and, and, which was remarkable because in, in every other way, the, this district was very, um, I don't want to say vanilla, but you know, very, very down the line with what I would have expected them to purchase. Um, but, but, but that, that sort of segues into the next question is, you know, so we're, we're talking about assessment, we're spending some time, people are listening to us. And I know that there are some SLPs and administrators out there that are thinking to themselves like, oh gosh, like another assessment, more time out of my day. What, what would be the argument? Like why, why, why would someone invest their funds in this? Why would someone, you know, reassess? Like why, why would this be the choice for a three-year reeval, for example, over what's already on the shelf? Well, my thought right away is, you know, you want to be able to provide the best, most comprehensive um, information, the best picture of this child, of this student. And, you know, I feel like the Castle 2 gives the best information out there for a language assessment that we can 
we can gain. Um, you know, as well as with the Arizona floor looking at the articulation side. So I think it's just what information can we gain um, about this student? We just want to look at the best picture possible. But um, Kristen and Amber, what are your what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with you, Laura, too, is that um, because of the way that these measures are designed to really tailor to a specific part of speech or like the castle to where we're really honing in on specific elements of speech and part of the development is pulling apart every other confound that we can within reason right i mean there's always going to be noise in some of the data but can we develop the task in such a way that it's not relying on memory can we show pictures for the younger kids can those pictures be in color so they're engaged i mean so there's a lot of those details that go into development for all of the tests not just the castle two but all of our tests that we spend so much time on the development side because we are you know a smaller company and we have a bit more flexibility in that way we really do take time and try to focus on what are the elements that are going to be involved in your day-to-day -day as an SLP and how can we support that and so on the scoring side how can we provide what can we provide as an output that would be helpful for you? Um, the design of the form, I mean, we spent some time with the Castle 2 to have this fold-out piece, so you don't have to flip back and forth every time you're going to put the raw scores into standard scores and flip back and flip back. It's like, well, why don't we have a fold-out piece? So that way it just sits there. So as you're going through, even while you're doing the assessment, you can count out the raw score and then just go put it in that column. So just little things like that that save time, that go into the development that seem like, you know, just details that you might even overlook, all of that combined, I think, just helps to create the whole experience of assessment to be as time efficient as you can be, to have the output be the most efficient that you can have it be, and most effective and supportive for what you need for each case and for each child that you're going to be helping and the families that are associated with all of that. I like that. 100%. And I think that um, the reason we do these things, though, of course, is that as we develop assessments, we keep in mind what they're going to be used for. So we know that um, assessments are used for eligibility and diagnostic purposes, but we also know that they are much more helpful if they can go beyond that and help with treatment planning. And that's one of the reasons why, for example, in all of Dr. Wolfolk's tests, there's in-depth item analysis. So you, you can determine where the specific areas of strength and weakness are so that you can help tailor uh, an intervention program to address the most deficient areas or the ones that are causing the most difficulty. Um, similarly, uh, you know, with the Arizona, if you're looking at these sound values and you know, okay, well, you know, this child is, is missing this letter that occurs all the time in speech, well, that's where I should start. Mm -hmm. And so all, a lot of our work in our... Um, development goes into trying to create output and scoring that will assist in the treatment planning process. And that's also where the online system comes into play because, you know, it's, it's when you try to go through paper and pencil and do all the item analysis, that can take a lot of time, as we all know. So that's one nice functionality that we built into the scoring so that when you do it online, all that just kind of comes out in your output so that you don't have to go back through and calculate all the different possibilities and things like that. That'll be part of the output that just comes in. What didn't we ask about that you would like to share? 
right. So we have another test that's going to come out. It's it's a ways off. It's still in very early development, but it's another test um, by Dr. Wolfolk. So the same author from the Owls to the Castle to the Opus. Um, and this one's focused more on perception of language. So auditory perception of language scales is what we're calling it right now, the apples. Um, and it's really what do you do with the information that you hear and what kind of things are coming into play with what you're understanding from that. So there's going to be some memory involved, right? So you have auditory memory is going to be a little different than your other verbal memory that you're going to be experiencing. So um, we want to tease apart if there's a problem there or if it's a problem with discrimination. Is it it's discrimination with phonemes? Is it if there's background noise present? Is it if the speaker has a rapid rate of speech? Um, so things like that that are all part of communication, but it's really on that kind of um, the input side, right? So it's beyond hearing, uh, but it's sort of what do you perceive when you're hearing and how does that affect your understanding of language? So that's one of the things that we're working on right now. Is that an auditory processing type assessment, it sounds like? Yeah, I mean, it's going to kind of cross over with that, um, but yeah. she did want to make sure to clearly define the word as perception. So it really is about the perception of the input that you get and then how you're able to to combine those things together so you can, um, what you're hearing and what you're understanding and is that, you know, can you have the recognition part and the reception piece, but then when you're able to express that, is that where maybe some of the, the skill might fall out? Or is it in the discrimination piece? So you can hear things, you can remember them, but then if it sounds very similar based on a phoneme, is that where the breakdown occurs? And one of the things that we're excited to get some data on, this is just an early pilot stage, but we're actually going to look at adults too, because this is something that goes across the lifespan. Mm -hmm. So I know most of the people, you know, work with younger populations, but we want to see kind of what happens after a certain point where there might be decline or somebody has a stroke or something like that. Um, how does that affect their language skills and in this area? So that's something that we haven't done in some of our other tests, but we're looking to sort of see if we can um, fill that gap a little bit and see what happens. Great. That sounds awesome. I'm really excited for that one. Um, this has been a real pleasure and a real joy. I feel like I, I, I learned a ton um, for a lot of SLPs. There's a, a little bit of a Wizard of Oz, you know, man behind the curtain when it comes to assessment. Um, and uh, to, to get a glimpse behind that and the, the research that informs it and the team that works on it, um, you know, has at least for me been, um, been very valuable. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Well, once again, my name is Lucas Stuber for Talking With Tech, joined as always by Rachel Madel along with WPS, uh, talking about the castle, the opus, and the rest of their assessment batteries. We will have all the information online, and I look forward to speaking to you all next week. Well, thanks once again to WPS for coming on. Uh, that was a really informative conversation about assessment, and hopefully it'll add to everyone's toolkit. Um, speaking of things that add to toolkits, do we have any cool stuff that's just happened or is coming up? Rachel, how about you? Yeah, well, actually, Lucas was uh, with me last night. We joined Educational App Talk, which is a Facebook group. And um, every Thursday at, I guess it's 9 Eastern Standard Time and 6 uh, Pacific Time, they um, discuss 
uh, they have a, co- they have hosts and obviously Lucas and I were, were lucky enough to be asked to host. And it's just a chat discussion um, about the latest and greatest apps. Um, Jane Claire uh, is with Teachers with Apps. She kind of spearheaded it. And, um, you know, we had her on, um, I guess it was a few months ago now, which seems crazy. But um, yeah, it was a really great experience. I, I met a lot of really cool people and we had a really great discussion. So if you haven't checked that out, definitely go to Facebook and join that group. And um, if you're available on Thursdays, you should join the, join the discussion. Chris, how about yourself? So I had some big news this week. My book, The New Assistive Tech, Make Learning Awesome for All, actually came out in uh, the, actually, like I have it in my hands. I got my first copy delivered to the door. It was, I got a a box of like 10 that I did to give out to my family and stuff like that. Awesome. I actually got to hold it in my hands. It's still not shipping yet, as far as I understand. Uh, It's still only for pre-order, which you can get over at bit.ly slash the new AT for all. And then the three of us actually just just gave a, a little talk together, a webinar, which was a lot of fun um, for the brand new Exceptional Ed. So if you go to exceptionaled.com, which is with an X at the beginning, we just did their new app conference and we talked about AAC in sort of a roundtable format for about 60 minutes. I, I don't think it's very expensive to, to get the talk. You know, you get a certificate for, for continuing ed credits. And after you do that, please be sure to send us your feedback. We would love to hear your questions. We're actually going to do a, a, a question and answer episode here pretty soon as we've gotten a good number of them, but we'd like some more. Um, send those please to tech at speechscience.org. Uh, and then also our Facebook group. So you can track us down. Uh, if you search for Talking with Tech on Facebook, you find our group and the page. The group is, is lively. Uh, you know, I think there's something like 800 people. So come join us. And then please, if you haven't already, head over to iTunes and hit subscribe. We would love to get a review as well. Um, that's partially because we, we want to get that, that feedback and feel those warm, fuzzy things. But also because that helps people to find us, right? And um, the whole goal of this is to, to share information that hopefully is helpful. So thanks once again for listening to Talking With Tech. My name is Lucas Stuber, joined by Rachel Madel and Chris Begay. We will talk to you next week.